Welcome to Yes, X or No Audio. The following is a completely unedited recording. You get all the ums and the ahs and the pauses. Sorry about that, but I think it was better done this way. Enjoy. Dear listeners, this is not uh, a reading of an article. It is a, a ramble, a rant even. So it will not be terribly professional. And, and I may not even get to the end point that I wish to. We shall see. I wish to propose to you a thought experiment. This is something I did some years ago, and it helped me understand about the complexities of governance. The idea goes as follows. You are to be the global ruler, the global dictator for let's say five years. Your mission is to deal with all the complexities of the world in five years. So, and you know that this is coming. You've been given a few months warning before you're going to be elected this global dictator. What are you going to do? How are you going to resolve disputes? It's actually a very complicated problem, which helps one realize why governance is so sticky. Oh, one more thing. After your period of five years as the global dictator, there will be no more dictators, right? So you don't have to worry about that. That's going to be solved. So the the question is, how do you leave the world at the end of your period of dictatorship? Surely one must have some principles to guide one in this. Now, let's assume that uh, you believe in, the, in the, the idea of the community of nations as represented by the United Nations. You mightn't believe it, ent- it, you know, it entirely and certainly not the way it's currently being run. The power structures are a bit skew-if, but anyway, the concept is what we're talking about. The concept of a community of nations, right? Let's also assume that you believe in the Declaration of Human Rights. So that, you know, there are certain protections that individuals uh, uh, should uh, receive against uh, government abuse, right? As outlined in the Declaration of Human Rights. So we'll just take that as a sort of bedrock, right? So community of nations and human rights. This This is sort of the framing, right? So you're in charge, five years. What are you going to do? Obviously, I will be speaking for myself here, and no doubt my opinions will change over time as well. So, But, you know, let's sort of get the ball rolling. So the, the mission is, at the end of the five years, to have the community of nations in a state where they are stable, at peace with one another, and able to interact with other nations in a sort of cooperative manner, right? So what we're trying to minimise is uh, dominance and oppression. What we're trying to elevate is discussion and cooperation, right? So that's our, that's our end goal, right? When we, when we retire into the sunset, the, the community of nations can go about things in a constructive manner. 
keeping an eye on both the issues that are important for the, their nation and peoples, and also for global issues like arable land, the weather, etc., <laughs> etc. Et there are global issues as well. Right. So, if we want independent nations that are strong enough to be able to uh, interact cooperatively with nations around them and resist domination of them, well, they have a few requirements they need. The first of which is food security. They need to be able to feed their own people. Okay, that's a pretty obvious. Another one is power. They need to be able to supply the power that fuels their societies and industries. This is absolutely core, right? core, right? And then, of course, there are the sort of human requirements that are needed, which are fundamentally physical, housing, uh, uh, clothing, obviously the food, as mentioned. And then you have really important things which aren't absolutely essential. And they are, of course, education and health. So these are sort of the fundamental areas of, of maintaining uh, a society that can function, hold its own culture together and express itself and all of the above, right? You need shelter, food, <laughs> clothing, <laughs> uh, power, uh, energy, uh, education. Healthcare. These are absolutely fundamental. So one of the goals of the five years would be to make sure that, you know, or to do one's best to to ensure that these core elements that, that maintain a, uh, a functioning society exist globally, everywhere, right? So, and one of the really nice ways to, to, to analyse what this means is to consider the construction of a hospital. And I think this is a really useful case point. What do you need to build a hospital? Let's start with the building. Remember, a hospital is not the building. A hospital is actually the people inside it <laughs> using the equipment which it's equipped with. But anyway, starting with the building. Well, it needs to be built according, built according to the uh, local conditions. It's, however, very likely that it will built, be built with um, uh, steel-reinforced concrete. Uh, so you need steel, you need sand, you need cement, and you need lime. Otherwise, you can't build the thing. Then you're going to need the, uh, the, the fittings that go throughout the building. So you're going to need beds and sheeting and washing machines and lighting not only just hallway lighting but specialist lighting for um, surgeries and so forth on top of that you're going to need x-ray machines and various other um, analytic devices uh, and we largely deliver their results these days in digital form so you also need computing and of course, you're going to need an effective pathology lab, and that means a raft of chemicals that they need to do their analytics on what the hell is going on in someone's bloodstream or whatever else the other sample is. So it gets very complicated very quickly. And then, of course, you need the doctors and the nurses and the pathologists and the cleaners and the... Uh, 
security staff and I mean it just goes on and on and on but that's why I think a hospital is such a great case in point because it it very quickly one understands how far this goes you know you need copper you need steel you need lime you need sand you need engineers construction engineers and you need doctors and you need administrators you know who can look after the the logistic supplies for the hospital and so forth Right? So it's a complicated process. And I think looking at just one little thing like the running, the construction and running of a hospital is a useful vehicle towards understanding the challenges and pressures of governance. If you can't build a hospital and have it actually operate effectively, then that means you are not an effective government. Right? So it's a good litmus test. How the hell do you do this? Of course, for the vast majority of nations, they cannot do all of this by themselves. They will need to acquire the uh, radiography equipment or the chemicals for the um, pathology laboratory or the x-ray machines or the computers or whatever, right? So the, this comes back to actually the 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 motto of a school which I attended, which is Nemo Sibi Nascutor, which means no man is an island. And this is equivalently true in the international space. No nation can stand alone. It needs its trade relations with other nations to acquire the things which it does not possess and which it needs. So this is where the whole international trade relations setup is so important and why I believe that what is happening right now uh, in terms of the reconfiguration of international power is really playing out more obviously in the international trade relations structures. And I think the USA personally is being really stupid uh, with its continued use of sanctions against you know, Venezuela, Iran, Russia, whatever. It's just it's actually doesn't help. All it's doing is dividing up the chessboard and they are losing because they're on a downward spiral. So it's not smart. I think the USA would be much wiser to be more constructive uh, in its approach. So, But back to the idea. You are the global dictator for five years. It's a one-term thing. Nobody comes after you and then it's all up to whatever's left behind. What are you going to do? So before we deal with the national situation... Let's look at the international situation. Now, firstly, the obvious thing to do is to decommission and ban nuclear weapons globally, without exception. How do you maintain that? You have to set up some sort of structure which can continue the enforcement. So it's a difficult process, very difficult. But my God, that would be, if it were me, that would be like number one out the door. How do we eradicate all nuclear weapons everywhere forever? Now... If you are very concerned about climate change, and a lot of people are, and there's good reason to believe that this is a big problem, the next question is how to transition the global energy supply off uh, uh, hydrocarbons into other forms of energy. And the answer to that question is you can't do it entirely. But certainly you can make progress in that direction. There are geothermal, wind, solar, uh, hydro. There are a lot of different energy systems which can be used which minimise the use of hydrocarbons. But you can never get rid of them because hydrocarbons turned out to be 
a really intense, in terms of energy per weight and energy per volume, source of power. They're really useful, and that's why they exploded. Okay. So that's, you know, that's another thing. I, another area that I would, as a sort of you know, global dictator, take on would be arable land. It is so important that we look after the quality uh, arable land that we have. It needs to be maintained with great care. And this is sad uh, that we are losing a lot of this due to poor farming practices and, in fact, the replacement of local understanding with how to deal with their environment by imposed systems coming from often... Um, uh, uh, international corporations imposing their style of agriculture on a community. So this is a complicated topic too, but the fundamentals of it are pretty simple, and that is that we really desperately need to preserve the arable land that we have, and indeed we should be far more thankful um, to our farmers than we are. They are so often ridiculed, and it really annoys me. Um, because you can't eat without farmers. Just put it straight up, shall we? So there are a couple. Let me let me just cogitate for a bit while I drag out a couple of more major uh, global issues before we jump back into the national structures. Perhaps one of the next most important sort of global issues are not global in themselves, but a, but is a problem that is recurrent, and that is conflict resolution. Those of you who have read this newsletter will be aware that I am sympathetic with the plight of the peoples of eastern Ukraine, uh, and I understand why it is that they requested Russia's assistance to defend themselves against the Nazi-infested regime in Kiev. I can also understand why it is that, that Russia chose to do this, given, given the common histories of these peoples and their experience in the Second World War against Nazi invaders. It's not at all difficult to understand why it is that the current situation has arisen. However, before it is the, the potential solution, and those were the Minsk II Accords. This is about conflict resolution. How can you solve a problem before it becomes a conflict uh, in terms of you know, people dying due to artillery shells and the rest of it? This is one of the most important things, and I think it's missing within the United Nations structure. We need, in whatever sort of intergovernmental discussion body exists, for there to be conflict resolution experts who are given a much louder voice, much more prominence, and able to sort of inject themselves into potential conflicts. I think the Minsk II Accords were an effective solution to that problem. Ukraine would have lost Crimea. That's understandable. It's been Russian forever, like whatever. But they would have retained the rest of Ukraine and given limited autonomy to the two regions. This was a practical solution to the problem. The fact that it was denied tells you who the provocateur is in that conflict. But on the greater conflict resolution level, 
The point is we need, we need pressure on governments to be applied when they refuse the conflict resolution measures which are put forward. It's fine to argue about the finer points of the conflict resolution, but the idea is that the resolution is what we're looking for. What we do not want is war. War is a racket. It never helps anyone. It, civilians get killed every single time, and then we start haggling around with the stupidity of the laws of war. I mean, good enough as they are. But the idea is don't have a war in the first place. Right? So, all right. So let me have a little rumination on the national side of things, uh, and then I think I'll conclude this. Oh, I forgot something on the global scale, and that is fresh water. Fresh water resources. This is something that is critically important and is very much at risk because one of the things that nations do is they invest in uh, setting up boreholes and extracting water from aquifers. This is not a bad stopgap measure, but if you keep doing this, you deplete the aquifer and then you lose the freshwater resources that it previously held. This we've seen, particularly in California, actually. It's also happening in um, uh, northern India. But in California, they've seen subsidence, right? The ground is falling down as the water is taken out of the aquifers and then it gets compressed. So global freshwater resources are the other one, apart from you know arable land and the other global topics I mentioned. So next to nations. For nations. Let's assume that nations are going to be ruled by a government, whether it's elected in some sort of democratic fashion or it's, you know, approved in some other way, whatever. Any decent government needs an effective bureaucracy. This is actually a really interesting topic because people get really pissed off about bureaucracy. The point is that a government needs a collection of services to call upon to answer questions that it has. What are the natural resources of our territory? How many people do we have? What is the average wage? Etc. You need these social geographers, geophysicists, so this is sort of maybe this comes out of the university sector, you know. Um, but then you also you need diplomats, you need lawyers, you need a whole raft of, of people to support the government in implementing its policies and also informing those policies. So people like to bitch about uh, bureaucrats and I think that's a, a, it's an error. Bureaucracies can grow too large, yes, and this is not a good thing. What we need is an effective bureaucracy. So, I praise effective bureaucrats because governments need them. Otherwise, they are blind and make even stupider decisions than they would without them. So, the, the question for a government is, okay, what are our resources? So, they are physical resources. They are industrial resources. What industries do we possess? And then what is the state of our population? What level of health? What level of education? Um, and what level of employment? 
Because the government's funds are generally derived from taxation, which is, in itself, a sort of return on investment for infrastructure. Or at least it should be. You know, you should be happy to pay your taxes because the government has delivered services to you, which you consider a benefit. If not, then get out there and protest. Be careful about refusing to pay your taxes. Governments tend to get rather heavy-handed on that front. But so this is the core of what a government needs. It needs to assess what it has in terms of industries, natural resources, uh, and, and its workforce. And then it has to care for its people to continue these industries and you know, social well-being. So how can one help governments to, to increase or maintain their independence? Well, that's about looking after those industries and natural resources and so forth. And that's why things like the plunder of uh, Russia in the 1990s is such a disaster. There, um, the the human li- average human lifespan for men dropped by I don't know five or six years. I mean, this is a disaster. There was depression on a on a huge scale because of the plundering and the you know, and also I think a, a loss of um, pride. In the, in the dissolution of the USSR. Yeah, okay. But this is, this is what governments are meant to do. Look after their people, preserve their resources. And then what they want to do, of course, is to make sure that they have some industries that are available for export that they can then use to trade with other nations for the things they need to build hospitals or schools or roads or national communications infrastructures or whatever else they want. So this, this, I think, is the other thing, is to look at the, the shifting of ownership of national resources outside of national control, whether that's industries owned by a government or uh, uh, corporations registered in the country controlling those, those industries and, and them employing significant percentages of the local population, right? to moving into a more sort of uh, uh, global uh, corporation uh, abuse of cheap labor and the sorts of things we've seen, particularly in Southeast Asia through the 90s and still, still see today in terms of China and, um, and its labor force being used to produce iPhones and whatever else. So these are the other issues to consider. Like at as you look at this preservation of national assets and industries, it's also about guarding against the sort of transnational corporations um, inserting themselves into your industries and then diverting the, the, the profits away from the nation itself. So, as I said, it's all very complicated. Um, but I hope you've enjoyed this thought experiment. I Please do it yourself. Work out what principles would you choose to be a sort of, you know, five-year global dictator, right? What would your, what would your intentions be? Uh, how would you try and leave the world so that it can then sort of survive as peacefully as possible thereafter? What would you do? I think it's a really interesting um, thought experiment. And I hope you... Um, Take it on yourself. And I hope you have different agenda 
to that which I've laid out. You've got other things that you think are even more important. Great. Go there. Have a think about it. I think it's a great thought experiment because it helps one realise the complexity of the problem, both at a national and a um, global scale. Uh, and it helps you in doing so to sort of identify the the players, right? And then the question is, how do you control those players? You know, is it with international law? Is it national law? Is it, uh, you know, coalitions of governments sort of, you know, clubbing up against others? You know, it gets really complicated. And the idea, in my view, is to reduce tension as much as bloody possible. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the the thought experiment. Um, Give it a go. It's actually challenging, interesting and fun. I have used the term aquifier when I meant aquifer. There is an important difference between the two. The latter is the body of water under the ground, which can be extracted with boreholes, etc. Sorry for the confusion. Thanks for listening. Until next time.